In uh, May of last year, I had the, uh, the great privilege of travelling to uh, Philadelphia and um, doing some study over there in America. And uh, one of the um, opportunities you have when you go on a plane, of which uh, most of you are very well aware, is you get the opportunity to watch movies. And uh, you tend to be on planes for a while. I think my travel time was about 23 or 24 hours all up by the time I got to the, the east coast of uh, America. And uh, so you're scrolling through the movies, and I found this movie, and I thought, that, that movie looks really interesting. Uh, has anyone here seen Gravity? With Sandra Bullock in it? Yeah, so I saw this movie called Gravity uh, with Sandra Bullock in it, and I thought, that one looks really interesting. And the, the longer I watched it, the more inappropriate it felt to be watching this thing at 30,000 feet. Um, I'll tell you, I, I, it was a really good movie, but I'm just getting halfway through, and I'm just going, you know, because the story is basically Sandra Bullock... Um, and a, and a co-star basically have, have uh, gone up in a space shuttle and their gig is to fix up the Hubble Space Telescope. They get up there, there's a Russian missile that's blown up uh, an unused satellite. There's debris coming in the space shuttle's way. They get this report, you've just got to get going because the debris's coming, it's going to get really messy uh, in a bit. Uh, and basically what happens is this debris hits the space shuttle, it detaches the arm that they were tethered to and so they start kind of getting into trouble there. They end up having to untether themselves from the, uh, the robotic arm that they were on. Look, basically the movie is a story about going into space and absolutely everything that can go wrong goes wrong in space. Um, and then you get to the end and there's this ending and you just kind of think, oh, finally. It's like, because the whole time, right, it's, they're in this vacuum, you, you know, they're just going to, and people are dying all over the place. And uh, I remember my, uh, my dad used to say that uh, the movies my pop loved the most were westerns where the only person left was the only one who wasn't dead. And there's a lot of westerns like that if you like watching westerns. But it was a little bit like this. Sandra Bullock was kind of like pretty much almost the only person left. She finds this uh, Russian escape pod and she gets in it and she managed to, manages to crack through the Earth's atmosphere and this thing comes down and it lands in a lake of some sort. And you're just kind of going... You know, it's like, just get back in the oxygen, just get back in the Earth's atmosphere, you'd be sweet, right? So she opens the escape hatch on this thing, and what happens? It sinks, with her in it, <laughs> all right? And you think that it was all going to be over, but then all of a sudden it, uh, it goes bad again. Look, there's a lot of parallels between the movie Gravity and the whole idea of going through and experiencing suffering. There's a sense in which it hits you, it isolates you, you can have lots and lots of people around you but feel so alone. It can, it can feel like you're going into space in a sense and you're in a vacuum and you're just wondering, how am I going to be able to breathe? Will this thing be the end of me? I'm gasping for air. And this is what I like to call uh, the existential vacuum. Now, as I've done some research this week, has anyone here ever heard of Viktor Frankl? You have a few people. So Viktor Frankl's a medical doctor and a psychiatrist and he actually happened to be a prisoner in the Auschwitz concentration camp. And he talked about the, uh, the whole idea of uh, an existential vacuum. And his idea behind it was basically that when people get to a point in their lives where they don't have any meaning, they get into all sorts of trouble. And that's what he called the existential vacuum, where people don't have any meaning or purpose in their lives. And what it highlights for us, he wasn't specifically talking about suffering, but what it highlights for us is that when we get in the middle of evil and suffering, it can be a lot like what uh, Frankel's talking about, we can be left very naturally asking the question, why? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why him? Why her? What do I do? 
I'm so alone. How can I breathe? How can I handle this? Why is this happening to me? So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at four stories of people who suffered and found themselves in an existential vacuum and see if there's anything that we can learn from them. You all good? Excellent. First one's Job. Job is, across history, is one of the classic um, literary pieces on uh, evil and suffering that uh, has often been referred to. He probably lived about 1500 BC, so we're talking about three and a half thousand years ago. He could have lived earlier than that. Here's how it goes. There was a man in the land of Uz. That's the town where all the teenage boys live. You know what I'm saying? Uz, Uz, you know? It'd be, it'd be a big town of teenage boys with a really big hospital. His name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Listen to this statement about Job. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. He's a very rich guy. Like you're sitting there and you're going, I don't have any sheep. So you're not as rich as Job, all right? If you had 7,000 sheep, you'd need a few extra things to be as rich as him. He's a very rich, significant man. Here's what uh, takes place in Job chapter 1. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, the NIV translation translates that angels, all right? The angels came to present themselves before the Lord. If you, uh, if you don't follow Jesus, an angel is just a creature that God created. So God's created other creatures other than, uh, other than human beings, and he created angels. Uh, and Satan also came among them. Now, Satan is an angel that decided that he wanted to be in the middle, in the center of everything, uh, instead of God, which is not possible because by definition God needs to be the most important thing because that's who God is. So he ended up turning against God and fighting against him. So God says to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, I love this saying, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now I used to ask students at the school, when I worked at the school uh, here, I used to ask students, I'd say, um, uh, what have you been doing? Oh, just walking around here, just doing this and that. i just go, oh, you're just like the devil. <laughs> they go, what? Here's the thing. You might just go, well, what's he up to? Well, it might help you, if, and this will help this whole chapter of Job chapter 1 here. It, it would help you to know that one of the main jobs of the devil is to accuse people, all right? He's just going out to poke holes in people, basically, all right? So when the devil says he's just been kicking back and he's just been wandering around and having a good time, what is he probably doing? Well, he's out there trying to poke holes in someone. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Do you hear that? It's kind of like God's going, You're out there to mess with people and to poke holes in them. Have you checked this guy out? He's a champ. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he'll curse you to your face. Mark my words. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hand, uh, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. This is a really, really helpful conversation between God and Satan that's often being misinterpreted and misrepresented. People, uh, a lot of people read this. In fact, I was talking to a guy this week who uh, read this and it just really messed with his head because he's sitting there and he's just going, 
Is this like God and Satan are having this wager over this man's life? Well, let me tell you, that's not what's happening here. What is happening here is absolutely brilliant. Okay? It's absolutely brilliant. And let me tell you why. You know what the devil's saying to God? He's saying, Satan, uh, sorry, Job only loves you because of what he can get out of you. Do you see that? He's only loving you for what he can get out of you. And then, uh, after this little interchange, which I'm going to refer, refer to a few more times, we just have one thing going wrong after another for Job. Okay? So God, just notice a couple of things. One thing is that uh, Satan's making the claim um, to God that Job only loves him. God's only, Job's only using God. The other thing that is going on here is you can see that God's actually putting boundaries around uh, what uh, the devil can actually do. But listen to what the devil actually does do to him. Uh, Job's sons and daughters are partying. The oxen and the donkeys are at work beside the kids where they're having a party. The Sabians attacked and carried them off and the reporter was the only one who escaped to tell them, to tell Job. The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. The Chaldeans took all of the camels and killed all of the servants. And Job's own sons and daughters were feasting and a mighty wind struck the house. It collapsed on the young people and they all died. Now, you get the feel like it's all happening in a really compressed period of time. It looks like it's almost all happening in the same day. Because the guys who come and report say, I'm the last one who has escaped to tell you. And then it says, then another person came after that, and then another person, and it ends up with his ten children being killed in a collapsed house. You see, that is a vacuum, isn't it? Straight up Job is right in the middle of an existential vacuum in a sense. And it goes on and on for him. You see, the devil said to God, you think Job is so great, you hurt him. And you'll see that he's not good. And we might react to this, as I said before, and just think, is God just playing games with Job? But as I said before, there's some clear guidelines that we can actually see here. Um, and one of them is really, really important to notice, is that God's not the one who's generating evil and suffering. It's not him that's actually doing it. You see, God didn't make a world that had disease in it. It wasn't meant to be a place of death. You see, this, the fabric of the world that we live in began to unravel when we turned away from God. Yet even though God doesn't generate evil and suffering, he actually is in absolute control. He's overruling evil and he's limiting evil. And if you look here, three and a half thousand years at least after Job lived, we're talking about Job. The devil wanted God to see that Job was a bad man and he wasn't a good man. He was just using God. He was a nobody and he should stay as a nobody. So what does God do? God allows the devil to do some things and we're still talking about Job. We're still talking about how he's such a great man. And so what you can see here is that whenever God gives the devil some rope to work with, it's only long enough so that he can hang himself. You see, Satan wants to prove that Job's evil and he becomes one of the greatest people in human history. How many people have been encouraged and helped by Job in his example of courage and patience? So, so many. And you've just got to understand that this is the way that God often works with us. He hates evil and suffering. But you can't say that he, that he can't stop it. 
Do you see that? That's the kind of the bond that you see here. Is it's like God hates evil and suffering, but then you can't say it's out of his control and that he can't stop it. He can stop it. He's just letting the devil have enough leash to hang himself. And perhaps one of the most disturbing things for Job, when her heart goes out for Job, is uh, Job walks this whole walk the whole way through the book. And do you know God never tells him why? He never finds out about the conversation that happened between him and the devil. Well, if you've read the book of Job, you'd know there's no shortage of people that want to tell Job why it's all happening to him. All right? And his first person who's particularly helpful for him is his, uh, is his wife. His wife says, the best thing, Job, just curse God and die. <laughs> so that's helpful. All right? You've just lost everything, curse God and die. Then life has kicks in. All right? And he says, and put yourself in Job's situation, Eliphaz says, Eliphaz says, Job, you're a pious man gone astray. All this has happened to you because you've gone astray. Wouldn't you just go, thanks, buds? Oh, that's, that's not helping right now. Now, before I go on, I just want to highlight something about Eliphaz. How many weeks do you reckon he waited before he started saying that stuff? One. Now, seriously, if you just lost everything, including 10 kids and your wife's telling you to die, basically, you'd probably want to wait longer than a week. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? It's pretty hard to come out and just kind of say, here's the deal, mate, you've, uh, you've gone astray and that's why it's happening. Well, it gets worse. Bildad chimes in and uh, he, he says, listen, mate, your struggle with the justice of God is blasphemous. Your family got what they deserved. Ouch. <laughs> Be careful that you don't meet the same men. Thanks, Bildad. That was helpful. Uh, Zophar. He gets into it even more. He says, repent or die the horrible death the wicked deserve. Thanks, buds. That's not helping. And then you've got uh, a lie who kind of shows up at the end and he basically says, Job, you're actually pretty self-righteous. I want you to pause for a minute and just think about this. Have you ever noticed how people who give pat answers, the pat answers have more to do with being in control than anything else? When someone's suffering and they just kind of throw out pat answers, it's like we're just trying to help people to get control of a situation. And that's kind of what was going on, I think, with Job's friends. Because in the whole of the book of Job, you get to the back end of the book of Job and what God is teaching Job to do is to hold on to mystery. That's what he's doing. You need to hold on to mystery. God wants Job not to try and get an answer to the why, but he wants him to stay in relationship with him and in relationship with a God that Job can't control. And I want to suggest to you today that you need to, in the midst of suffering, embrace not knowing. Embrace not knowing. And I want to go even further than that and say this. For you to get out of suffering what God wants you to get out of suffering, you need to not know why. You actually need to not know why. You see, what the devil was saying to God is he's saying Job actually doesn't like you for who you are he likes you for the stuff that he gets out of you he's using you now who here actually likes it when people use you anyone like that it's like you all know it you've all either been to salesmen or you've had friends and you just start getting that inkling underneath it's like you don't even really like me that much you just want to get something out of me and you know that it's kind of dehumanising at that point in time. It's like all of a sudden you've become an object. And even when you manipulate someone else like that, you, you 
get dehumanized in that whole process as well. And this is what the devil's saying about Job. He's saying he's only in it for himself, God. That's all he's in it for. And what's going to happen for Job is that God is going to teach Job to learn to love him for who he is in himself alone. And I want to ask you this question today. How are you going to learn to love God for who he is in himself alone if you never go through suffering? Suffering is when things get taken away from you. Like if you don't actually end up in a place where you're getting nothing out of God, how do you learn, how are you ever going to learn to love him for who he is? You see, Job actually did pretty well, didn't he? Those who know the story. He loses all this stuff and then at the end of it, at the start, uh, he says something like, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we would look at Job and we would say, on the surface, and I think it's largely true of Job, yeah, he doesn't love God for what he can get out of him. But what we see as the story goes on is that there's still some self-centeredness in there. There's still a little bit of messiness in there. You see, the only way... For God to turn Job into a man of greatness is for him to suffer and not know why. And I would ask you today, do you want to be a great person? Do you want to be a great man, a great woman? Well, if you do want to be a great man or a great woman, you know what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to suffer and embrace the mystery of not knowing the why. You see, some people kind of go, if I could just know why I'd be able to get through this suffering, if I could just know why this is happening to me. But you know what? As soon as, if you were told why at that point, you know what it would do is it would fail, the suffering would fail at that point to achieve what God's wanting it to achieve. You have to be willing to let God put you through the ringer. You see, if your happiness is tied to things and stuff, When things and stuff get taken away, you get taken away from your happiness, the centre of your happiness. Do you get that? But you see, if if the centre of your happiness is God himself, when things and stuff get taken away from you, you know what's actually happening? You're getting pulled toward the centre of your happiness. And that's kind of where Job ends up. It's a real process for him. We need to be patient with people as they go through that process. But that's what's actually going on for him. And he turns into a great man that we're still talking about three and a half thousand years later so i'd ask you today where is the seat of your joy and happiness is it in things because if it is it'll make you sadder and sadder and madder and madder when you suffer but if it's in god if your happiness is in god you can never ever be taken away from your ultimate happiness I think Job learnt how to love God for himself alone. Story number two, Ruth and Naomi. Anyone ever read the book of Ruth? Yeah, a little uh, narrative in the Old Testament. Uh, so I thought we'd just uh, read a little bit uh, about Ruth and Naomi and um, just see how we go, see what we can learn there. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. You see that? Straight off the bat. The uh, storyteller is saying there's trouble, okay? There's suffering there. People don't have food. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, okay? So here's the deal. There's a country to the east of Israel, and uh, this guy and his wife and his two sons have decided we need to go there. Now, it's not Israel, and I'll get to this a little bit later, but they probably should have stayed in Israel. 
The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, this is really important, right? Because you get the sense at the start of the story. It's like they gather their family up, they need to find food, so they're going to duck into Moab, right? They'll probably pull into Woolies. There'll be a 24-hour Woolies in Moab. We'll just pull in there. We'll just get a little bit. Then we'll come back to Israel, right? But then the narrator kind of tells you, look, what's actually happened is they've not just gone there, but they've stayed there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Whoa, all right, look out. Now we don't just have a famine, do we? Naomi's husband's just died, all right? It's getting difficult. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, which they weren't supposed to do. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Do you see that? That's not like just ducking into 7-Eleven in Moab, all right? They're there for a decade. And listen what happens. And both Marlon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, you might sit there and you just go, well, Tony Abbott, you know, he'll hand out... Well, it's not Tony anymore, is it? There you go. He'll hand out family tax benefit. Malcolm, he'll look after you. All right, he's got a bit of spare cash floating around. He'll, he'll, uh, he'll look after you. But here's the thing. You've got to realise back in the day here is uh, there's no social security back in the day. Do you know what the social security was for a woman? Her husband. All right? And failing her husband, you know what a social security was? Her sons. But now what we've actually got is Naomi doesn't have a husband and she doesn't have sons. All right? This is a very, very difficult situation. The story goes on. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. So her and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, decide they're going to go back to uh, Bethlehem. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now, what's going on here? She's going, forget about me. I'm done. My life is done. You go back to your houses and see if you can find some support there. It's not going to be any good for you coming with me. What happened? And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, counter-argument, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, I'll just stop at this point and explain this really quickly. Here's the way that it would work. If you were married to a man and he died, the law was marry the man's brother. Okay? That would be where you would get support. Some of you going, that would be really weird. And it does sound really weird. I'm with you on that. Okay? But marry the man's brother. Do you know what the deal is here? Both of the brothers are dead. There's no one else to marry. So what Naomi's actually saying is she's going, listen, here's the deal. If you guys come with me and I get married today or tomorrow and I get pregnant on my wedding night and I have, I'm pregnant with twins and they're both boys, 
even if they were born and, and then grew old enough for you to marry, you'd be too old and you wouldn't be able to have kids and it'd be difficult for you to be looked after. That's what she's saying. That's her counter-argument. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Can you hear that? I mean, this is really difficult for Naomi. She's really saying, I'm as good as dead. Just look after yourselves. I'm as good as dead. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Do you hear that? Orpah's just gone, okay. She goes, she leaves, but Ruth doesn't. Then Ruth and Naomi head back to Bethlehem. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now that raises the question for me. I just wonder, what had the grief and the trouble that Naomi had been in? What had it done to her that people were going, is this Naomi? Like, it's almost like we can't recognise you anymore. She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, I want you just to sit a little bit there with that scripture. Do you feel uncomfortable reading that? Do you sit there and you think, I think I've got a theological counter-argument for what she should be doing and the way that she should be talking. That's not right. She's not talking about God correctly. And there's a sense for us sometimes, isn't it, when people share things with that kind of degree of pathos that we just want to get into the pat answers, don't we? Anyone ever had someone say these kind of pat answers to them? We say to people, um, well, it could be worse. Ever had that one? Could be worse. Sometimes people who are in the suffering say that. They go, oh, it's not as bad as other people. Yeah, but it's still pretty bad. See, the interesting thing about God, if you read the whole Bible, you will never find God comparing one person's suffering to another. But we do. It could be worse. We could say things, if you're a Christian that's been following Jesus for a while, sometimes you can catch yourself just asking people, what do you think God's teaching you in this? (laughs) Now, are you really going to say that to Naomi? Now, the great hope is that God will teach you something in the midst of trouble, right? But are you really going to say that to Naomi? What about this one? We say to people that God will work this together for good. Now, that, that's a Bible verse. And that's a true Bible verse. And if God isn't overseeing things to bring about good outcomes, all the hope is going to evaporate from the world. But let me say this to you. That's a really overused Bible verse that gets quoted to people in the midst of severe trouble. You know, it almost takes us back to Job, you know. I mean, the fellows back in Job, Job's friends, I mean, it's, seven days are not enough to wait to talk. We say things also like, if you need anything, let me know. <laughs> All right? When someone's suffering. You see, what, what actually needs to happen in the midst of trouble like this? Well, I want to suggest to you that what, what needs to happen is compassion. And compassion means to suffer with someone. We don't say, let me know if there's anything that you need. We just go looking for things that we can do to help them. What, what you actually notice, I don't know whether you've noticed it here with uh, Naomi and Ruth uh, one here, but there's actually an additional pain that Naomi's actually experiencing that goes over and above just the suffering that she's got. And you know what it is? It's the pain that she's in covenantal 
relationship with God and she feels like he's out to get her. And so not only does she have the, the, the pain of the physicality, the pain of the famine, the pain of the broken family, but she's actually grappling also with the pain of this God who's meant to be for her that she feels like is against her. Libby Graves is a, um, a scholar at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. This is what she says. She says, Naomi is an Israelite, one of Yahweh's own children, and yet his hand has persecuted her. There is deep, ancient, forever binding covenantal anguish in her complaint. Yahweh is God, and yet he is against her. He has not only allowed, but orchestrated the mini holocaust of which she is the sole survivor, left destitute and without hope. That hurts. You might expect to be treated badly by some stranger, but not by your dad. Do you hear that? That's just, it's like, she's got this pile of pain. And that's just for her, in the way that she's understanding, it's just another piece on top of the pile. And what's she doing here? Well, she's painting a picture of her situation that is as bleak as possible. She's saying, I'm as good as dead. And we can get really uncomfortable with this kind of seeming disrespect of God. And what, how does God respond? I wonder whether you're asking that question. You see, people who don't believe in God probably don't feel this kind of anguish, the kind of anguish that Naomi feels. Naomi feels it acutely because God is in control. You see, there's still suffering for people that are following God, but it's not kind of personal. She feels this pain because he's in control. And I don't know whether you've noticed those who've read the Psalms, but about a third of the Psalms are actually laments. Because this is what Naomi's doing. She's lamenting. And some of you in your pain, I would just want to warmly encourage you, you just need to lament more. What's a lament? A lament is what you say to God in between reality and God's promises. That's what's going on for Naomi here, right? She knows who God is. She knows who he's supposed to be. Reality's down here and she's in the gap. You hear these kind of things in Psalms, in in the Psalms. Psalm 10 verse 1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13 verse 1 says, How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? Has anyone here ever prayed a prayer like that? You see, we don't talk about that stuff very much. Do you know why I think we don't talk about that stuff very much? It's because we're very stoic. All right? We've got a fair bit of carryover from the British background. You know, it's stiff, stiff upper lip, isn't it? And when someone, if someone came out in church, even in the project today, in a group, and said something like that, it had probably just unhinged us a little bit. All right? Because it's, it's kind of emotionally unbalanced. And kind of one of the rules in our culture, in our society, is you don't be unbalanced emotionally. But you know what this is? This is living life in the vacuum. This is grieving in the gap between promise and reality. It's actually what someone does who's sitting in the vacuum of a loving God and they're being evil and suffering and they take it to him. Here's a great quote from Paul Miller. Paul Miller says this, Lament is grieving in God's face. That's what it is. Now, some of you might be going, well, hang on, Naomi's lament is a bit messy. Anyone kind of notice that? 
Anyone notice a little bit of self-pity in there? Did you? It's like my situation is the worst. Any, anyone notice any bitterness in there? God has attacked me. I mean, there's not really a note in there of any kind of human responsibility, is there? Because it kind of looks like maybe the family going to Moab was something that they shouldn't have done. What if it was wrong to leave Bethlehem? Yet, what is Naomi doing? And this is what I want you to notice here. She's lamenting and she's pouring out her heart to God. And you better believe that's something that God wants you to do. He wants you to speak to him from your heart. What is Naomi doing as she's lamenting God attacking her? She's returning to Judah. She's returning to Bethlehem. Do you see that? And it looks like in the book of Ruth that that's a bit of a symbol of the fact that she's repenting. She's turning away from some things that they did that maybe they shouldn't have done. And I want to suggest to you today that when you lament and you grieve and you're still oriented toward and facing God, you become someone that God can really work in because it's a kind of posture that is very dangerous for good. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, uh, writes about a senior devil warning a junior devil about this kind of obedience to God. Here's what he says. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause, the devil's cause, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished. Do you hear this? That's the vacuum, right? And asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. I think Naomi was doing that. And let me ask you the question again. So what do you think God was up to with Naomi? How was he loving her? Do you know how he was loving her? Ruth. (laughs) That's how he was loving her. Here's the truth. God loves us through other people, doesn't he? And that's what happens in the book of Ruth. The whole of the rest of the book of Ruth is how Ruth sticks with Naomi and God blesses Naomi through Ruth. And that brings us to the third story which I want to share with you today. It's actually a member of our church. His name's uh, Dan Graff. I uh, met with Dan earlier this week and, and... Dan shared his story with me. Um, I would have loved to have, him to have been here so that um, I could have interviewed him this morning, uh, but he had another engagement that he had to be at. So he's written his uh, story down for me, and I'm going to share his story with you. His dad was here at the earlier service, and, um, yeah, it's a very touching story. On the 24th of December 2012, on the family property, uh, Dan and his family built a water slide, a slip-and-slide, in preparation for their family get-together on Christmas Day. There's a monster carved out of the hill. They uh, dug a, uh, a, a kind of dam at the end of it, a small dam at the end of it. Uh, they filled it up with water. They fully lined the whole thing. They decided they'd duck off to uh, Christmas Eve service. Um, and they came home and one of the family said, let's, uh, let's go and give this, this uh, slide a bit of a burl. Let's go and give it a test. So the family went down to the slide um, Dan thought he'd just go down to watch but once it got going he just thought I can't resist actually doing this it was about 8.30pm at night uh, very bright night the, the moon was quite full 
Um, he'd gone down a hundred times, he says, as he darted down the slide. But uh, this particular time, as he entered the water like a pin, he cut through the water to the other side of the pool and he broke his neck. So his, his head hit the other side of the pool and his, his head went back like that. And, um, and he shattered his C5 and he fractured his C6 on impact on the, uh, the bank of the, the pool. He said uh, darkness hit. Um, he doesn't really recall what happened in that moment because he just kind of got... Um, he kind of passed out for a few seconds uh, and he came to face-to-face... Sorry, not face-to-face, face-down in the water, uh, confused and unaware of what just had occurred. Um, he tried to paddle, but his, uh, his limbs didn't work. And he began to panic because uh, um, he realised that he'd, uh, something bad had happened to his neck, that he'd broken his neck. Uh, with what breath that he had, he called out uh, to the family because he was face down in the water. Uh, they couldn't hear him. Uh, and he was just about out of breath and just about to take a big mouthful of water for air uh, when his dad pulled him out and laid him on the bank beside the pool. So here he is lying on the bank next to the... Uh, the pool, the family had established that he'd uh, done something drastic to his spine uh, and he just was overcome, he said, by fear as his breath just shortened uh, more and more. And then at some point in time, he, um, it sounds like he audibly made peace with the Lord in front of the family and with God. Uh, he said to me on Tuesday uh, morning, he said, um, he said, God was in my life, but he was kind of in the background. Uh, he wasn't kind of in the centre of it uh, massively. He was kind of sitting in the background. He was always there, but it wasn't, God wasn't a major focus for him. But he said what was uh, amazing was that uh, after he made his peace with God, his father started praying for him out loud. And he said, he actually said to me on Tuesday, he said there was a moment when I was lying there on the grass where the peace of God came over, over me and he said it never, ever left. He said, I still have it today. The ambulance arrived, they stretched him and took him to the local showgrounds. A helicopter loaded him onto the... Uh, uh, they loaded him onto a helicopter and the helicopter flew down to Princess Alexandria Hospital. Um, he doesn't remember the flight. He remembers waking up just before they took him into surgery and telling the doctor he wanted to wake up with his beard intact. Um, he talks about waking up uh, post-surgery, his family at his bedside... Um, you know, obviously it would have been a very emotional time, family hugging him. Uh, his family were, some of his family were crushed um, badly by it all. There was lots and lots of tears that day. Listen to what he says. These are his words. As I assessed my body, I certainly felt frustrated and confused. I couldn't move my limbs, use my torso, my hands, couldn't speak properly as I had a breathing tube down my throat that felt like a high-fly garden hose had been used, not to mention the hundreds of other cables and wires that I was attached to monitoring my body's every function, feeding me food, drugs, water and the news I may never walk again. I believe I accepted the news well. I felt God had me in his hands. He has blessed me with a solid family. Everything will be okay. And you might want to just read with me as I go through a few more comments. I spent two weeks in high dependency where I felt, where I feel God was closest. Though also where some of my lowest and darkest times were had. Laying in bed during the dark of the night alone, wanting to sleep, though every time I closed my eyes, the accident played over on my head, torturing me. I wasn't sleeping, and I had pneumonia as a result of taking in some water into my lungs. As a result of the pneumonia, I had lots of gunk, phlegm in my lungs, and airways, and would often 
caused me to choke. Coughing it up was near impossible as my diaphragm doesn't work due to my injury. So I had to request assistance from a trained physio to help me clear my airways. Listen to the vacuum here. It was these nights spent awake that I would often greet the morning sun with tears of sorrow and wanting my old life back. But I always felt God there by my side as I cried, comforting me as he held my hand. Is that beautiful? This is where I would sing the words of that song among others to myself and would pray to God for healing, to help me see beyond the pain, for purpose and to accept whatever his will was. I would then be at peace and fall into deep, deep sleep. I want to uh, play a bit of the song that got Dan through. Um, his troubled time and um, just a really powerful song. So I guess uh, just invite you, just imagine being Dan and God speaking to you through this song as you're in, uh, in the vacuum. Raging fire, pressing fight Through the storms in my life I'm always satisfied Cause you are here with me You lift me up so I can stand. You made me a better man. Oh, I'm always satisfied because you are here with me. I asked him uh, 
he told me that that was the song that got him through uh, on Tuesday I sent him a Facebook, Facebook message a day or two later and I said uh, how many times do you reckon you listen to that song and uh, he said it was on repeat <laughs> ha ha after it it just tells you where it was at for him let me uh, read a couple more comments from Dan about life in the vacuum life in the vacuum like I'm sure it is for others was full of uncertainty confusion doubt uncertainty about what the future would hold now for me being a quadriplegic confusion as to why this had happened to me and doubt about whether I'd ever walk to use or use my hands again be able to earn a living have a family and many others I never wanted to dwell here for too long as I knew it would only bring me down I would pray most of the time accompanied by tears during my time of mourning for God to help me see beyond this to give me strength and to help me accept this life-changing injury if a full recovery wasn't to be. I was also surrounded by a handful of Christians and inspirational people during my six months in hospital going through the same thing. I believe shaped and moulded who I am today. As I mentioned, I am a musician playing drums in a handful of bands, church and outside. I had a special connection to music and believe it has aided my healing journey. Listen to this. I still fall into the hole of self-pity sometimes, but I'm quietly content in the fact that God loves me unconditionally. Isn't that beautiful? He has a plan for me and would always provide a way. He has blessed my life richly, even if I'm not able to walk, and I am thankful. Isn't that amazing? Do you know, like, when I, I haven't even read all the stuff he sent me. But do you know when I read the stuff that he sent me, I think suffering has done to him what it was intended to do for Job. Do you see that? So he's left, you get this sense when you, when you read his stuff that he's, he's getting to the end and it's him and God. <laughs> and God hasn't been vindictive toward him and allowed something terrible to happen to him, to hurt him. God's actually done something that's brought him and God very, very close. And do you hear that even in the midst of it here, God will always provide a way and he loves me which brings us to our fourth story it's Jesus it's Jesus see God became flesh and came and walked on this planet before he went to the cross and he died and he had all the injustice and the sin and the pain of this world poured into his body he prayed in a garden and he prayed in that garden Father, if there be any other way, is there another way that we can do this? And there wasn't. And Jesus, in a sense, was in the vacuum. And when he was in the vacuum, his blood, his his sweat dripped like blood onto the ground. And then, of course, following that, they crucify him. And what happens when he's being crucified? Well, as he's dying, he asks the same question that you ask. He asks why. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I just want to pause here for a minute and just zip back to Job. You remember the devil said to Job, he said, So he said to God, he said, Job doesn't really love you, he's just using you. Let's go back even before Job. Most of you would know in the Bible it talks about how God created the world and it was perfect and Adam and Eve 
were created and they were perfect and the devil came in and he tempted Adam and Eve to turn away from God. Do you know what the devil really tempted Adam and Eve with? You can't trust God, he's just using you. You can't trust God, he's just using you. And did you notice, did you notice when we read this stuff with Job before, when, when the devil went to God and says, Job doesn't really love you, he's just using you. Do you notice that God didn't give in to what the devil said? He stood up for Job. But do you notice when the devil goes to Adam and Eve and, say, and says, you can't trust God, he's just using you. Adam and Eve give in and they believe it. You see, in one sense, this is the cry in the vacuum, isn't it? It's the cry of, does God love me? Or maybe God doesn't really love me. You see, the whole way along, the devil's plan for all of us has been to say to you, if you trust God fully, and you give him everything, you totally give yourself to him, he's going to crush you and you're not going to be happy. That's been the lie. You see, the devil kind of had a bit of a point. I mean, Job was a pretty good guy, but he wasn't perfect. And God could have come out at that point in time to, uh, to the devil and just gone, you know, you've got a bit of a point, but he doesn't, does he? So why do we automatically think the worst of God? When we get into suffering, why do we automatically think the worst of God? That, that's the thing with this whole question, isn't it? How can a good, loving, all-powerful God coexist with evil and suffering? The question really is, he's not loving. No one's really arguing the toss whether God's God. We're arguing the toss about whether he's loving or not. So why is it that we automatically think the worst of God? I was listening to some stuff from Tim Keller this week and you know what he says? He says it's because we don't really deeply believe that God loves us. He said Job was only partially innocent. Jesus was the truly innocent sufferer. He was the only sufferer in the history of this world who's been completely innocent. And his obedience his perfect obedience to his father resulted in the perfect vacuum didn't it it resulted in the ultimate abandonment it was kind of like the father was saying to jesus if you obey me fully i'll send you to hell do you get that i will punish you for all these other people's sins it's like if there was one person that didn't deserve suffering it was him wasn't it he was the only person who served and didn't get anything out of it. Do you get that? He was the only one who actually served his father and served people around him and got nothing out of it. And the question is, and I hope the question in your heart right now is, well, why would he do that? Well, he did it for you. He did it for you. He did it for all those moments that you struggle with where you wonder if anybody loves you. You have an answer. You have an answer. It's an answer that proves that the devil is lying. It's an answer. This one here, this photo here, this picture of Jesus is your answer to every atheist who thinks that God's not loving. Jesus was the only one who loved you 
for who you are and not for what he could get out of you at all. And he suffered for you so that when you suffer, you can become like him. I want to finish with this quick story. A good friend of mine is, uh, in the last four weeks or so, has just been diagnosed with cancer. He's got multiple cancers through his body. And I caught up with him. We spent almost two hours talking on Tuesday morning. You know what? This guy has walked with God for decades, maybe 40 years. He knows, even in the midst of trouble, that God's faithful and that God's good. He knows that God is a well-proved help in times of need. He's walked it. As I do with a lot of people I sit and talk with, I said, hey, I've got to talk about this on Sunday. There's people out there in the middle of their suffering, they just want to know why. What would you say? What would you say to people who are suffering? He said to me this. He said, I'd tell them, don't ask why, ask what's next. Now you might sit there and you go, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what he means. You know what he means? This is what he means. He actually gets up every morning since he was diagnosed with cancer and he says to God, not even making this up, he told me this Tuesday, he says, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do? And do you know what? It actually hasn't changed post-cancer diagnosis. Do you get the point? It's, there's something just precious in that, isn't it? It's like, yeah... I've heard some really tragic news, but he's still with me and we're still going to walk together during the day. And he's got some stuff for me to do today, so I just need to find out what he wants to do and we'll, we'll go and we'll, we'll do it together. See, God is as much with him as he ever has been. His cancer diagnosis didn't change any of that. Why don't you just pray with me for a moment? God, help us to uh, get better at sitting in the vacuum. But we so desperately want to know why. Why? God, we so want to know that, but it's just, if you actually told us, it would kind of wreck the purpose of the suffering because then we'd be getting something out of it and we wouldn't be learning to love you for who you are. God, it's really painful. I pray that you just help us to, uh, to gather around each other in our suffering, in our trouble. Help us to have compassionate hearts, hearts that will suffer with one another, hearts that will cry with people and laugh with people and just be with people. Amen.